Welcome to the book album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. <laughs> hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hallo und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Herzliche Grüße aus Deutschland. I am thrilled to welcome you all to the second episode of our December Dickens 2021 series on none other than The Chimes by Charles Dickens. And a reminder that we chose our content for this fourth season of December Dickens with care and not to show exclusivity to one tradition over another, but rather to review great literature as just that. Without further ado, let's open our books to the chimes, shall we? Plot summary. The Chimes, a goblin story of some bells that rang an old year out and a new year in, is the full title <laughs> in four quarters, is Dickens's second Christmas novella written in 1844, the year after he wrote his A Christmas Carol. Starting in on the first quarter here, there's a very strange introduction, and I almost read this introduction like a, the introduction in a piece of music. For example, in Beethoven's Fourth Symphony, there is this wonderful, mysterious, very slow introduction in B-flat, and the rest of the symphony is in a different key and it's in a very different tone, and there are the two themes, etc. It's in sonata form. But essentially, there's this introduction that really draws the listener in of, oh, this is something very strange that we're about to listen to, something very exciting. And I think there's sort of this prelude aspect to this introduction as well, where there's this unnamed narrator who has a sense of humor we'll come to find, but the narrator introduces us to this idea that no one would want to sleep in a church alone at night. And the narrator walks us through the different images in the church and the different kinds of scenery or scenes that you might find if you did, in fact, find yourself alone about to sleep in this church. There are really gothic undertones in this particular introduction, which really distance themselves from the rest of the story. This is almost like we're getting this omniscient, kind of detached perspective right in the start, whereas the rest of the story becomes much more personal. It reminds me a lot of the short story The Wind by Ray Bradbury. It was in a collection of short stories 
that we read for Horrifying Classics in 2020, and it was one of the short stories that chilled me the most and that stuck with me the most after I read the collection, so I'd recommend giving that a read if you have a moment. Let's read a passage from page two. Quote, they were old chimes, trust me. Centuries ago, these bells had been baptized by bishops. So many centuries ago that the register of their baptism was lost long, long before the memory of man, and no one knew their names. They had had their godfathers and godmothers, these bells. For my own part, by the way, I would rather incur the responsibility of being godfather to a bell than a boy and had their silver mugs, no doubt, besides. But time had mowed down their sponsors, and Henry VIII had melted down their mugs, and they now hung nameless and mugless in the church tower." Unquote. So you can get a sense here early on of how dense and deep this kind of description that the narrator starts out with is, we're getting a scene of the bells, the chimes. We'll talk about the difference in a second between those two terms. But there's this kind of alliteration that I love. These bells had been baptized by bishops. <laughs> this kind of B alliteration. I mean, Dickens, like any author really, is no stranger to the kind of intricacies of language and how sound also really makes an impact. On the Patreon channel for this month in December, we read a short story called A Holiday Romance that Charles Dickens wrote with the audience of children in mind, which is very unusual for him. He was all about social reform, especially in his middle years, early to middle years, and really wrote for adults in mind. His, obviously, the scope of a lot of his novels would be completely outside of the scope of children and their understanding of such literature, but he does a couple of similar things in that particular short story where he plays around with sound, he plays around with how things are written, narrative perspective as well, and those are traits that are somewhat similar in this short peace. Eventually, we come in on Trotty Vec, or Toby Vec, as his Christian name is, and Trotty Vec, you can think of him much like a grown-up Oliver Twist. Oliver Twist was written between 1837 and 1839 in a serialized form, as were most of Dickens' true novels. This novella came out all at once, which is really interesting to think about how it's sort of written serially but came out all in one piece and it sort of read, was read then as we would read it today, which is not the case with Dickens's novels where people would have to wait months on end sometimes for the next serial to come out. So Trotty Beck is basically our grown-up Oliver Twist. He's quite old actually, he's like in his 60s or 70s and he's a letter carrier. We meet him outside the church because that's his station, that's where he awaits people to give him letters to deliver, and he is not doing great. He's had a hard 
not only a hard turn of luck this season, but also a hard life. And he's not embittered by the cold. His body has been sort of ransacked by the elements in various ways, and he's known as Trotty because he trots. He doesn't go that fast. He thinks he does, but he doesn't really, it seems like. And he nevertheless is cheerful and always in a good mood, and he's sort of this gracious, lackadaisical almost kind of figure who is someone who you would never begrudge to meet if you ended up running into him. Trotty is waiting in the cold. It's almost New Year's, as we know, and by now in this part of the story. And his daughter Meg comes to him with a plate, steaming hot plate of tripe, which was a very common um, food back in the 19th century, early 19th century. And tripe was a delicacy for people in this part of the social class at that time. So she's kind of exuberant that she gets to deliver her father tripe. And she has all of these explanations and then they really land on the main topic of conversation, which is that she will finally marry her engaged lover, Richard, on New Year's Day. So there's sort of this celebration, excitement, anticipation that comes along with Meg when she brings the tripe. Out of the church comes Mr. Alderman Cute, Mr. Filer, and Richard comes from a different right, a different route down the way. And Alderman Cute is sort of the magistrate judge type of figure in this town. He's very notable. Beloved is maybe a term you would land on here. He's not a gracious man though. He essentially rebukes the poor and rebukes Meg and Richard for wanting to get married and gives them sort of a hashed out worst case scenario of what their life, what their life together and their separate lives are going to look like when they get married. And they sort of say, well, Meg, half of your children are going to die and you're going to become a spinster and you're not going to be as attractive as you now are. And Richard, you're not going to marry as high up as you really could. Meg is too low for you in status. And you're going to regret that all your life. And you're going to become this very embittered old man. So, you know, all this nonsense essentially coming from Alderman Cute, this person who has no idea really what lies on the other side of the glass, so to speak. And He's known for putting things down, quote-unquote, anything really that comes his way that's disagreeable to him, i.e. reminiscent of this lower social status than his, he will quote-unquote put down. So he'll essentially put on trial or just put away these people who come to him who are of little, lower status no matter what they've done. So not a great guy. He does, however, give Trotty Vec a letter to go deliver. Now entering the second quarter, page 15. Quote, the year was old that day, 
The patient year had lived through the reproaches and misuses of its slanderers and faithfully performed its work. Spring, summer, autumn, winter. It had labored through the destined round and now laid down its weary head to die. Shut out from hope, high impulse, active happiness itself, but active messenger of many joys to others. It made appeal in its decline to have its tolling days and patient hours remembered and to die in peace. Trotty might have read a poor man's allegory in the fading year, but he was past that now." Unquote. So Trotty goes to the richest part of town. He goes to a nobleman named Bowley, Bowley, however you'd like to pronounce that. Bowley or Bowley <laughs> is the head bigwig of this part of the town. And he's the one responsible really for everyone in the city. So he's sort of like almost, I almost think of him like a mayor kind of figure. And he's busy, he's very busy now because he's setting, resetting all of his accounts right before the new year. So he is of a very strong opinion that he should not carry any debt, any uh, obligation or interaction into the new year. He wants a complete reset in the new year. I think this is something we nowadays find very attractive and we also do to a certain extent with New Year's resolutions and so forth. And I find that interesting that there's a commonality there between almost the heightened ridiculousness that Dickens is bringing out in Bowley and him really struggling and, you know, sort of clambering about trying to maintain all of his accounts and really reset them and our current search for this hard date to start something new or to stop doing something when in reality we don't need a hard date to do all of that you could just keep your accounts balance all the time <laughs> easier said than done i suppose so Trotty Beck is a fly on the wall, essentially. They won't let him go, really. They, they're just chatting him up, chatting the room up. It's Bowley and his wife and their banker slash right now he's uh, writing down, he's dictating for them. And they're talking about Alderman Cute's letter, which mentions a name, a man of the name Will Fern. William Fern. And he has had a hard pass at life, really. He's just... He's gone to prison a couple times, and he's wandering about these this area, trying to find a friend um, of his late sister, and he has his niece with him, Lillian. And the letter from Alderman Cute essentially says that Alderman Cute is going to put him down and put him in prison again. Not great news for Will Fern, obviously. And Trotty Beck leaves, he feels sort of enlightened and, and bolstered by the robust chat that Bowley has almost inflicted upon him uh, about the poor and supporting them and so forth. And on the way back, Trotty meets Will Fern and his niece Lillian, and he says, Will, do not go to Alderman Cute's house, he will put you down. <laughs> this is a bad idea. He 
Trotty, that is, falls in love with Lillian right away, not in a romantic sort of way, but in a supportive, fatherly, loving kind of way. And he offers Will Fern and Lillian a place to sleep with him and Meg. They go home, they make house essentially for Will and Lillian. Meg and Lillian hit it off right away. It's one of those very sweet Dickens moments. I think of the time, the scene when Esther first meets her cousins. Richard and Ada in the courthouse in the novel Bleak House, which we read earlier this year. And that was also a similar, similarly sweet scene that was just so touching to see where they, Esther and Ada, that is, immediately, immediately take to each other. And it's really similar here. Meg and Lillian take to each other immediately. They're inseparable immediately. And there's this quiet joy in those moments, even though they have so little to share. And it's a big sacrifice, really, to give the loft and to give their portion of food for the day to these strangers, these travelers. There's this quiet joy and solitude in being able to impart that gift, even though they have so little. Lillian settles down and Trotty sits down with the newspaper when the chimes start to ring, the chimes in the church where we started out the story. On page 25, this is the chimes speaking. Quote, Toby Veck, Toby Veck, waiting for you, Toby. Toby Veck, Toby Veck, waiting for you, Toby. Come and see us, come and see us. Drag him to us, drag him to us. Haunt and hunt him, haunt and hunt him. Break his slumbers, break his slumbers. Toby Veck, Toby Veck. Door open wide, Toby, Toby Veck, Toby Veck. Door open wide, Toby. Then fiercely back to their impetuous strain again and ringing in the very bricks and plaster on the walls, unquote. So we've got this almost violent repetition of Toby Veck's name, obviously. Come, the doors open, haunt and haunt him. Jeez Louise, these bells are getting very vicious here. We're only in the second quarter. So the bells, the chimes, that is, start calling Toby. And he gets up and they're particularly loud tonight. He can hear them all throughout his house. And he goes outside and he decides, you know, I'll just meet them where they're at. And so he goes up to the bell tower, the very top, not in the middle where the string is to pull the bells, no, he goes to the very top right next to these bells and he's looking at the majesty of the bells and he faints. Third quarter. When Trotivec wakes up, he wakes up to a fantastical sight, I'll read some of it here. Page 27, quote, He saw the tower, whither his charmed footsteps had brought him, swarming with dwarf phantoms, spirits, elven creatures of the bells. He saw them leaping, flying, dropping, pouring from the bells without a pause. He saw them round him on the ground, above him in the air, clamoring from him by the ropes below, looking down upon him from the massive iron-girded beams, 
peeping in upon him through the chinks and loopholes in the walls, spreading away and away from him in enlarging circles as the water ripples gave way to a huge stone that suddenly comes flashing in among them. He saw them of all aspects and all shapes. He saw them ugly, handsome, crippled, exquisitely formed." Unquote. So all these figures are weeping around the bells and then there's this sort of ramping up of energy and suddenly the figures die. Like he sees them actively dying and disappearing. And more fantastical things, if you can believe it, start to happen. There's this kind of beard, these bearded figures that he sees in the bells, in the chimes. And then he starts to hear this music coming down from the church and he looks all the way down through the church and he sees a funeral dirge and he hears his daughter Meg singing in the funeral and he says, oh, Meg has died. Why has Meg died? What's going on? And then he looks out the window and he sees his own body lying there and the bells tell him that he's been dead nine years. This moment is so devastating, I have to say, especially since Trotty is such a redeemable figure. I mean, he's not like the most astute, like learned kind of person, but he's a good person at heart. He's someone who you want on your side, someone who you want to win, ultimately. And he gets a fate so much like Scrooge in the beginning here, I guess in this beginning of the second half here. And I find that really interesting that Dickens sort of parallels Scrooge and Trotty in that way, where they both see themselves dead and they have this miraculous conclusion of, wow, I've messed up. Except what has Trotty messed up on, really? The bells are angry at him because he's essentially assigned feelings to them that they didn't have. Is <laughs> this very long, dense passage of the bells talking to Trotty back and forth and Trotty saying, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I have done so wrong by you. And the bells saying these just essentially very dense nuggets of information about how Trotty has wronged them. And all of that concludes to the message that Trotty had essentially read too far into the chimes. Trotty then goes through a bunch of visions, and the visions are very similar to the visions in A Christmas Carol. It's actually really interesting how similar those two, the first two Christmas novellas are, where Trotty also has this sort of infant-like guide, I think very much of the first guide from A Christmas Carol from last week, and he goes through first to a scene with Meg at work, and she's much older and she looks much more desperate, and her beauty is starting to fade, but really it's her hope that is starting to fade, and that affects her physical appearance quite greatly. And she's with Lillian, but you get the sense that she's tirelessly working with no aim and no end other than to survive. Then he ends up going to a banquet at New Year's, and this banquet is with the Bowleys, and 
there's this scene where Li Will Fern comes in and he's just been released from prison for like the fifth or sixth time and he starts to ask essentially for the noble people who are attending the banquet next time they see someone in Will Fern's position to think about having mercy and not to just condemn, condemn, condemn because of someone's station in life. And the last scene is, or there's two more scenes, I suppose, but last scene this quarter is Meg and Richard talking. Richard is this, he kind of has this appearance of the bedraggled alcoholic. And Meg and Richard are fighting, essentially, saying Meg and Lillian are somehow estranged. And Meg is giving Lillian money to live off of and supporting her and Lillian through Richard gives all of the money back and keeps giving it back and Meg says no go back give it back to her don't accept it back no matter what and at the end of this Lillian rushes in Richard has left rushes in hugs Meg and dies in her arms and the saddest part is at the very end of this quarter, page 38, quote, In any mood, in any grief, in any torture of the mind or body, Meg's work must be done. She sat down to her task and plied it, night, midnight. Still she worked, unquote. Wow, and you know, these sentences are the shortest that I could recall in the entire novella and they're just so beautiful and so unsettling in a lot of ways where literally Lillian has just died and Meg gets up and goes back to work. The fourth quarter. The last vision. Trotty comes in on Mrs. Chickenstalker, who's the neighborhood like grocer slash store owner, and she's now Mrs. Tugby, and her husband, Mr. Tugby, was the banker slash dictator in one of the earlier scenes with the mayor figure. And they're both tremendously fat, and I thought that this little scene with them, they've just eaten seems like muffins and they're sitting and they're just tremendously overweight and Trotty is like looking on them like why am I here and he's sort of being led by this childish spirit who keeps disappearing and it's kind of just a weird again sort of mystical kind of view and we learn that Richard has recently died Meg is with their infant and Meg ends up marrying Richard not in their happy days of youth but because Richard needed one last person to redeem him in order to secure a job and Meg does it out of pity, out of a good heart, hard to tell. Here at this point in the novella the pacing starts to speed up and it gets a lot more the style that is gets a lot more modern again more immediate almost like the introduction in some ways although the introduction is very slow and winding whereas the 
part here is much more fiery. And the point we learn of all of these different scenes and parts of grief that Trotty is led to experience by the bells, the point is on page 48. Quote, I see the spirit of the chimes among you, cried the old man, singling out the child and speaking in some inspiration which their looks conveyed to him. I know that our inheritance is held in store for us by time. I know there's a sea of time to rise one day before which all who wrong us or oppress us will be swept away like leaves. I see it on the flow. I know that we must trust and hope and neither doubt ourselves nor doubt the good in one another." Unquote. I know that we must trust and hope and neither doubt ourselves nor doubt the good in one another. That's the, really the, the crux of this short story, this short novella, is this piece about trusting and hoping and neither doubting ourselves nor others. And you get through, at least I got through this, and I thought, but Trotty never did doubt himself. Well, he may have doubted himself, but he really didn't doubt the good and others. And he's has this sort of naive persona that way. So really, is Trotty Beck the character to reform, to deliver this message? I'm not really sure. And that that's one, again, one big distinction between A Christmas Carol and The Chimes is that Scrooge has a lot to redeem in himself, whereas Trotty is, has been, again, beat up by life, yet maintains this very humble, naive sort of outlook on life. And so I almost question why Trotty is the one to be teaching these particular lessons. And then you get to the big spoiler in this story, <laughs> which I had to go, I was speed reading this, you know, on a second pass before I recorded this episode. And I had to stop again <laughs> and reread it because it comes so suddenly. Okay, here it is. The tripe that Trotty ate in the beginning of the story, disagreed with Trotty. And so he hallucinated this whole thing. The whole, like literally from the first, the end of the first quarter through now, he's hallucinated it because he had a bad reaction to the tripe. And so Trotty comes out of his stupor from the tripe. He's at home again on the same night. And it's suddenly New Year's. The, the clock strikes 12, the chimes are ringing, and on page 51, let's close out the short novella here. Quote, Had Trotty dreamed, or are his joys and sorrows and the actors in them but a dream, himself a dream, the teller of this tale a dreamer waking but now? If it be so, O listener, dear to him in all his visions, try to bear in mind the stern realities from which these shadows come. And in your sphere, none is too wide and none too limited for such an end. Endeavor to correct, improve, and soften them. So may the new year be a happy one to you, happy to many more whose happiness depends on you. So may each year be happier than the last, and not the meanest of our brethren or sisterhood debarred of their rightful share, 
and what our great creator formed them to enjoy." Unquote. So wow, we get this nice uh, Christmas message essentially at the end of the short. And yeah, the fourth quarter is such a wild surprise after, of course, the issues that we've gone through in the other parts of this short novella. But in any case, it was absolutely a joy to read this. So well written and so interesting and very different from a lot of Dickens' other works, which we'll talk about now. Quarters, Chimes, and Bells I thought a lot about why this short story is written in four quarters. And really, this short story is all written about time. It's about bells which mark time, bells which are timeless in that sense. Four quarters make an hour, but four quarters also make a year. There are four seasons that each of the four quarters correspond to. And in this short story, when Trotty goes on his hallucinatory tripe trip, Time is fluid, but it's also very strict, and the bells ringing mark the beginning and end of so much of this short novella. The way that Dickens writes is, as I mentioned before, so much like he wrote when he wrote in serial form, and basically what he does is he gives us a cliffhanger after every quarter, almost like this kind of passage of time and in this way with the marking of the bells is inevitable. So I thought a lot about, again, as well, the difference between chimes and bells. And the bells, most literally, are the actual physical bells in the church, right? The chimes are the sounds the bells make. It really seems that Dickens uses these terms somewhat interchangeably, but to me, the chimes take on that sort of mystical quality, that mystical or magic, uh, magical type of reality, um, or in reality, irreality, um, rather, that the bells do not. So the bells are more grounded in reality, whereas the chimes are grounded in irreality. And Trotty seems to use chimes more often when he's talking to the chimes, or when he hears the chimes talking to him. Again, there's sort of this interchangeability going on, so take what I say with a grain of salt, but I was reading a lot into the difference between these terms because I thought it was interesting. Why name the entire short story this long name? The Chimes, a goblin story of some bells that rang an old year out and a new year in. And sort of, even in the title, Dickens is juxtaposing these two terms, the chimes and the bells. And so I did think a lot about that. I think the chimes is this sort of magical, mysterious kind of quality, um, has it rather, that the bells do not. The bells are perhaps grounding in a way that the chimes are not, for example. Magic. So 
I'll go on to talk about a couple things that are notable about this particular work that stand out to me compared to Dickens' other works, and I think this is a really fun type of analysis for me to do, especially as we've read almost a Dickens, uh, almost a dozen, almost a Dickens, almost a dozen, maybe more than a dozen novels by Charles Dickens on the podcast. I mean, Bleak House notwithstanding, that was the sort of magnum opus of this past year in 2021. So it's so rewarding to me now that I know Dickens so well, I know his various periods very well, and his various writing styles and aims and contributions, and little idiosyncrasies and intricacies. Now that I understand and know all of that, it's so fun to go back and look at this work as compared to his other works of that time and in general. And of course, magic is one thing that differentiates both A Christmas Carol and this particular short novella from his other works. Dickens wrote, there's no question about it, Dickens wrote realistic fiction, and he had often social causes, such as with Oliver Twist, which came out a few years before this, about seven years before this, and even the other sort of early, end of early period novels that he would go to write, such as Dombey and Son and David Copperfield, those were novels that were just so realistic, grounded in this sort of reality. It, it was like he was describing someone's life, not that it was this magical, twisted, Lewis Carroll type of universe. I mean, he does have obviously, characterization and other things going on there, and where he highlights certain traits over others, you know, the names are a great uh, way to do that. Trotty Beck sounds like kind of a horse name, or you know what I mean? Like, he kind of has these little Dickens-isms that we see even in this short piece and in other works as well, right, with, um, I mean, Oliver Twist, what an amazing name. David Copperfield. You get a lot of the sense of what and who these characters are just by their names. And we have Martin Chuzzlewit is a great uh, other example. But we don't have literal magic in the other pieces that Dickens has written that we've gone over on the show that I've read personally. And so there's this like sense of like the goblins are quite special and it's such a small part of the short story that it sticks out even more. It's almost like the shark and jaws. The reason why the shark and jaws is scary is because you don't see it basically at all and the reason why that's so masterful is your imagination fills in the rest. We don't really have that long of a description of these goblins, and they don't stick around that long, only a page or two. But our ability to fill in the gaps with our imagination makes those images so much stronger and so much more lasting in this particular work as well. The length of this particular piece is also unusual for Dickens. It's 51 pages on the online link that is in the show notes for this episode, relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under episode 205. There's this sense that Dickens 
wanted to write long form and really wanted to really detail everything and his writing benefits so much from that style especially in the longest novels that he wrote Bleak House for example and David Copperfield Great Expectations is sort of in their mid-length as well so even in these longer pieces I think that's where Dickens really shines uh, but that is so that runs so contrary, right, to these little bite-sized pieces, these little teeny novellas, like Heart of Darkness length. <laughs> and I love that he's able to still put in so much dense scenery, but he also gets to play with things like pacing and things like style that he doesn't play with um, in the same way in these other longer works. So with with uh, style in particular, this kind of gothic style, and then at the end, this immediate, quick-running, surfacey kind of style. All of that is really interesting to read in a piece that is a shorter length like this one. The thematic material I found really interesting in this particular piece, Dickens doesn't touch religion for the most part, at least not. I really tried to rack my brain while I was reading this short story um, the few times that I read it, and I really could not think of much where Dickens was tackling religion and this sort of introduction with the religion and there's like the, you know, the way the church is kind of barren and desolate and the way that Trotty Vec kind of juxtaposes the the literal architecture of the church. That's so interesting and that's that's very scandalous if I might say so. And so that religious undertone throughout this short story is also something and then the way that it ends, right, with this sort of call to greater justice, call to greater God and greater faith and faith in the good in yourself and others. Right? All of those kind of undertones tie this short story, this short novella together in a way that is so unique and is very contrastive, in my opinion, to his other material. Narrative layering. So right, narrative layering, another big one for this short, short story, short novella. There's the main frame, the main narrator, the one who introduces us to Trotty, the one who introduces us to the church, for example, but the story is written in an omniscient third-person perspective. So whereas we're following Trotty from the time we meet him to the end of the short story where it sort of zooms out again, Trotty is effectively our narrator for a time, and we get access into his thoughts and feelings in a way that we don't, or rather we get a magnification of his thoughts or feelings that we don't get for a lot of the other characters. We know their thoughts and feelings, of course, because of the omniscient third-person perspective, but there's this sort of closeness to Trotty that we all get through this choice of the narrator to follow Trotty Vec in particular and his tripe experiences. I will say I really enjoyed the nar narrative layering, and this is, you know, this is common to Dickens, and it's common also to the time period, the mid-19th century, when Dickens is writing from. So I really did enjoy it. I thought that was a piece that was 
so fitting for the style of the writing in general, the style of the short, the short story, and what Dickens wanted to communicate. So I actually did quite enjoy that particular distancing that Dickens involved and this sort of motivation of following Trotty Veck throughout, even though Trotty Veck is not the narrator. We get this sort of rawness that I feel that we wouldn't have gotten if Trotty was self-censoring all the time in his narration. And finally, this short story stands so much as a testament to Dickens's early avoir of literature. It's quite humorous. The narrator is has a sense of humor throughout. There's little quips and jokes and um, even in the passage I read at the beginning about not wanting to be the godfather of a boy, but rather the godfather of a bell because it'd be much easier, right? There's these little quips that are just so sharp in the story throughout it, and that really brings a reminder of Dickens's early humorous works. I mean, I think of how people, some artists, some great artists, start out doing sketches or political sketches or like magazine work. Dickens really started with humor and the humor changes a little bit in tone as he gets older and as he starts writing things like Bleak House, like Great Expectations, for example. But in these earlier pieces, it's sort of almost a it's closer to a slapstick kind of humor, and we see that in Martin Chuzzlewit, Dombey and Son, David Copperfield, all forthcoming novels from Dickens at this point. So it's an amazingly light narration at times, considering how dark and how existential the subject matter of the short novella is as a whole. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this second episode of December Dickens. We will join you shortly next week with the third episode of the series. Until then, thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. I'll see you next week. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.